Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. There are periods in human history when the fields of monetary policy and foreign policy converge. And this is one of them, says Paul Tucker, my guest on this episode of the podcast. Tucker spent over 30 years as a central banker and regulator. He was deputy governor at the Bank of England between 2009 and 2013 in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Although he now works as an academic at Harvard University, he is still a prominent voice in discussions about systemic risks in the global financial system. Tucker joined me last week to talk about his new book, Global Discord, in what he told me was his first ever podcast recording. Listen in for the next 30 minutes for a wide-ranging discussion of the intensifying superpower rivalry between the US and China, the significance of the Russia-Ukraine war, the unresolved weaknesses in the financial system, and why democracies cannot afford another financial crisis. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so on patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, search for New Money Review. Even a few dollars, euros or pounds a month will help me with the running costs of the site and the podcast. Paul, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners about yourself, your area of work, your background and your recent book? I'm Paul Tucker. I'm a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. These days I write where political economy, economics meets politics and political um, theory. Um, that began, that new phase of my life began about nine years ago. Before that, I was a central banker at the Bank of England for over 30 years, um, ending up as deputy governor there. And I retired from that in 2013. My, the title of my new book is called Global Discord. Um, values and power in a fractured world, and it's a it's an international follow up to an earlier, slightly narrower book called Unelected Power, which was about how is it that we've come to live in constitutional democracies where so much power is in unelected hands. But the the scope of this book is much wider, and I think much more important. It's a very interesting read. I must say it, it combines uh, some of the financial market topics that you know, I know you've been working on for many years, but with, with things like moral philosophy, game theory, history, um, geopolitics uh, and, and international relations. So let me start by asking you a question about the, the area we're living in, because in your book, you go back to the ancient Greeks. But just you say that we're currently in an area where economic policy and foreign policy have converged. Why is that? Because we are in an extraordinary moment, really the beginning of what I think will be many decades of a contest struggle between the People's Republic of China and the Western world, led for the moment by the United States, where unlike the old Cold War, the West and China touch each other everywhere. The Soviet, old Soviet Union and the United States were great rivals in the security sphere and in some elements of foreign policy but lived in a world where their economies were basically bifurcated. The Western liberal world was completely bifurcated from the Soviet um, economic bloc with a little funnel um, for purchases and sales of, of energy. This is nothing like that today. China and the West touch each other all over the world in trade in finance in monetary affairs in cross-border investment. Um, and we've seen over just past few years, how dependencies, over-dependencies can be uncomfortable. COVID strikes and we, the West, find that we're 
dependent upon China for certain things, and we're uncomfortable with that. Meanwhile, they don't want to buy our, our vaccines. And a war breaks out in Central Eastern Europe, and it turns out that too much of Europe is too overly dependent upon Russian energy, and Russia, it turns out, surprise, surprise, isn't a friend. And I think that economic policymakers, um, and to some extent security policymakers, have been naive about this over recent decades, and that that has been ending. When I started writing the book, probably in 2019, um, these two communities were still, the economic policy community, the security policy community, barely touched each other. That is beginning to change as, as the daily news flow um, makes apparent um, to us. Right. So is, is conflict between the US and China inevitable, or do those interdependencies you've been describing, but both at the level of trade and in the, in the money markets where you know, China, as we know, is, is, a, is a huge investor in US government debt. Um, do those interdependencies make it maybe less likely that we, we could see a, a large-scale conflict? They, they make it a bit less likely, somewhat less likely, but they don't rule it out. This was one of the tragic mistakes at the beginning of the 20th century. People thought that the degree of integration between Germany and the United Kingdom and others at the in the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, would stand in the way of of serious conflicts. But of course, it it didn't. It, it reduces the chances, but by no means eliminates them. I I think the chances of decisive conflict, by which I mean um, not necessarily nuclear war, for goodness' sake but a conflict where there is a, a clear victor and the world order gets either reinforced or completely reshaped. I think that is unlikely, but not impossible. I'd put a 10% chance on a conflict of that kind over the next half century or so. Um, but I think that there will be... Um, Lots and lots of awkward skirmishes and contests um, and proxy battles. We've seen this a bit in um, the border between India and China, and we, we will see it elsewhere, I think, over the coming decades. And it matters for these purposes that whereas the Soviet Union and the United States had reasonably well-articulated de-escalation protocols, so far as I know, Beijing and Washington do not at present. And so that makes the world a more dangerous um, place than it would otherwise be. So does that mean you see the current Russia-Ukraine conflict, for example, in the context of a, this wider battle between the US and China? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Um, I do most definitely. Um, and that isn't a view that I've come to as this terrible conflict has proceeded. It's, it's a view I almost had in advance. I mean, had I been asked to make a prediction, I would have predicted that Putin um, would wait until um, she makes his move against Taiwan and that Russia would then make a move against Central and Eastern Europe and the West would find itself with struggles on two fronts and very badly stretched. And I think that um, one of the extraordinary things about um, the war in, in and on the Ukraine 
is that so far it has made Russia a less useful ally to to China, but not a worthless um, ally. And of course, that's partly because um, so far it is in slow motion weakening um, Russian society, but it's also galvanized um, transatlantic friendships and alliances, and has even begun to galvanize um, German um, policy and opinion on the importance of security matters. So I, I think I think that the war on Ukraine in Ukraine absolutely fits into um, the broader geopolitical contest, and you've seen that. Even, even though even though China's not making any obvious, not taking any obvious uh, you know, military role, it's it's not the Russians are using what we think are Iranian drones as part of their arsenal. They're not. Chinese are not militarily involved in the conflict as far as we can see. No, but they've been more than studiously um, um, neutral at the United Nations and elsewhere, whereas I would say Delhi has tried to um, find a path that is neutral and without alienating the West. Um, China um, certainly went a step beyond that with its proclamations of of friendship and commitment towards, towards Putin. And it's too early to, to say um, in what way, if any, China has been helping Russia, but they certainly haven't been helping the West, either in the votes in at the United Nations or more tangibly. Right. So we can expect more of these kinds of local, I mean, this is obviously a big war in Ukraine, but uh, you know, local wars, skirmishes, border conflicts in, in, in different parts of the world as part of this bigger picture conflict between I fear so. I fear so. And although, of course, you rightly describe it as a significant war, a big war for us in Europe, it, it, this won't feel like a big war if you're sitting in Latin America or if you're sitting in Southeast Asia. Um, it's 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 a regional, um, almost a regional struggle that has that has brought in NATO as a regional security um, pact. But it's it's not one that's being um, conducted across the. The, the planet, whereas I think the background contest is one where there will be tensions all over the place. Um, In your book, you, you say that the current geopolitical conflict resembles the 18th century tensions between the, England and France. Why do you see the parallels there? Um, let me begin by, on this by saying that the reflex comparison for many people is is the second the German Second Reich and Britain in the run up to the to the First World War? Um, in the great scheme of things, that was rather short lived. Whereas whereas um, the the struggle contest between Britain and France lasted from the the end of the seventeenth century to the to the to the beginning of the of the nineteenth um, century. It was a it was a long eighteenth century. And it was one that was conducted across the whole planet at times in Southeast Asia, the coasts of India, um, in parts of Africa, um, in parts of South America, of course, in Europe. And, and I think one can even, in the later 18th century, see the American War of Independence, the American Revolution as part of that broader um, struggle. Um, but given the support that France provided to George Washington and his people and 
I think the key background to that is that neither Britain nor France was in a position to knock each other out and until one or the other had a vast number of allies on their side, which, which Britain eventually um, did. But the other thing is that the, it, was, it was an ideological contest in that not all of the time, but the, the concern that Britain had about um, 18th century France was that it began the century um, with one form of absolutism, universal monarchy, and ended up the century ended the century with a different form of absolutism, um, revolutionary absolutism. As Burke said, the objection wasn't so much to French power; it was the wrong kind of power, the kind of power that would not only change France internally but would change the known the known world. And the parallel isn't exact, for goodness' sake, but I think that's how we should think about um, the contest between. The West and China for the for the moment, something that wasn't noticed by many. In 2013, just a year after Leader Xi became leader, um, the the People's Party um, published the Seven No's, which I won't read to you as a litany. But basically, this was no against liberalism and no against no against universal rights and no against a free press and know against all sorts of things that we would think, well, actually, that's exactly who we, we are. So th- this isn't a standoff. This isn't a standard textbook standoff between a rising superpower and, and uh, in relative terms, a declining superpower who hold more or less similar beliefs, but actually who's going to be top dog. This is, this is a contest between, um, between superpowers who have, um, profoundly different views on what is a good way of life, how a society should be organized, how the world should be organized. And, and I don't see that going, going away. This has, been, this has been my view for, for quite a long time, I should say, not formed during the writing of this, of this book. So let's, let's turn our attention to the financial infrastructure. That's a, that's a topic you've been working on for many years in your, in your your work at the Bank of England, and then subsequently uh, on the Systemic Risk Council, you, you've been a lone voice warning about the dangers of of what we call shadow banking. Um, and, and I'd like to ask you to draw that into the the, 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 the bigger picture you've been describing the, of the superpower conflict between the US and China. But let's let's start with a question on, on shadow banking, because uh, that when the financial crisis happened in 2008, it turned out that there were lots of Risks in the system that people hadn't hadn't spotted. There were there was credit being extended in parts of the system that people were not monitoring properly. Perhaps you could tell me what shadow banking was in two thousand and eight at the time of the great financial crisis, and what you think it is now. In 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 one sense, it's pretty much always the same at a high level, and then manifests itself in different ways at any particular time. At a high level, it it always involves. Some combination of of leverage, a lot of leverage, and and of liquidity transformation, liquidity mismatches, um, and in in the and of course that is it, it, it is a fragile compound because it is subject to runs and runs that lead to a forced sale of assets to raise liquidity. And if the thing, if these shadow banks are big enough, then that depresses asset prices, 
and so depresses wealth in the economy and pushes up the cost of capital and um, hits the, the real um, economy and so spirals on itself. In the, in the run-up to the, um, to the 2007 phase of the, of the great financial crisis, the canonical examples are money market mutual funds, asset-backed commercial paper conduits, structured investment um, vehicles, um, some monoline um, insurers, um, the Landis banks, the the U.S. Um, government sponsors sponsored enterprises Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which subsidise mortgages in the United States. So today you have a slightly different list. Um, be money market mutual funds again. This time round, it will be some stable coins and some other forms of crypto asset. Um, a kind of peculiar form of almost shadow banking are the um, liability-driven investment vehicles that we saw almost unravel recently in the in the United Kingdom. And it's the, it's just the standard cocktail of of excess leverage. Liquidity mismatch, it's all absolutely lovely until the music stops and everybody then runs for the exits and there's a scramble to raise liquidity and that almost is a self-fulfilling crisis, which is why you see central banks stepping in. And, and where this le- links to our, um, our previous conversation, because the linkage may seem remote, is we, the West, cannot afford to have another financial crisis. And I may just leave that hanging there for the um, moment uh, as something to come back to. But I, I think that it's tremendously important. I mean, to, to overstate the point only slightly, shadow banking policy is part of security policy. Right. And so shadow banking in 2008 and its collapse led to the extended period of low or zero uh, interest rates to quantitative easing uh, and 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 perhaps certain problems being pushed under the carpet for resolution later. So you're saying that that there's a risk of something similar happening again in different parts of the market, but this time you think it's a threat to the, what we could call Pax Americana, the the um, American-run financial system. Yes, and I think it was was a bit last time. Um, Governor Joe's, um, the People's Republic of China Central Bank Governor, um, a fine man, a good central banker, his speech on we really need to replace the dollar with some new kind of international monetary system. I think that speech was given in 2009. The Belt and Road um, strategy was accelerated. Um, perhaps it would have been accelerated anyway, but it was accelerated in the wake of, um, of the financial crisis. And, you know, there's nothing very surprising about this. Someone can't, in a sense, criticize Beijing for pursuing their own their own interests. The West was in great difficulty. It was distracted by its own problems. And of course, all really big financial crises tend to create social, political, even constitutional dislocations. And so you turn inwards rather than um, outwards. I mean, you think about the United Kingdom, which is a kind of uh, a medium-sized player in this in this game. Whatever one thinks of Brexit, if one thinks it was a terrific thing or a kind of very bad thing, I think something that's almost incontrovertible is in the years leading up to the referendum and then after the referendum, 
Britain stepped back from the international stage because it was just so busy having a dialogue with itself. And that's, that's, that's not a criticism of anybody involved. It's, it's a description of what, what crises lead to um, and how that distracts um, from foreign policy. And, and, you know, that's not something that the West um, can afford. And by the West, by the way, I don't just mean things that are geographically in the West. I mean, I, I mean to include societies like Japan and, and South Korea and others that are essentially um, constitutional democracies, um, albeit of a, in those cases, very fascinatingly, and I think hugely importantly, with a Confucian heritage. Uh, you suggest that, that the remedy for the shadow banking risks are, are, there are two remedies, I think, in your, in your you suggest together. One is that, that we need to provide comprehensive liquidity insurance for, for so-called safe assets. That could be, I suppose, money market mutual funds or stable coins that are pegged to a, a dollar value or another fiat currency value. And the second, the second thing you suggest is um, better cross-border co- coordination for handling insolvency. Could we could we discuss those two things in turn? Let's talk about the liquidity insurance. How? how I mean, I remember when we um, when there was the debate about money market mutual funds after the two thousand and eight crisis, there was some pretty heavy lobbying from the money market fund industry in the U.S. to to either to you know to they didn't want to have to put up capital against uh, the, the funds that were promising a stable net asset value um, and you know, is something similar uh, likely to happen here if you if you try to impose liquidity insurance oh, I on think there would be a lot money market funds or stable coins or whatever it is yes I think there would be a lot of lobbying um, if I have a criticism of my former colleagues and I mean that internationally not only nationally it, it's that they have adopted uh, an approach to shadow banking. And I'm quite surprised by this, given the discussions in 2011-12 when I was still involved. But their approach has been, we will monitor it and respond. And I formed the view, um, slightly before I left office, articulated almost immediately after I left office, um, on, on, I think on the occasion of Ben Bernanke's retirement from the Fed, that, that a strategy of monitoring is almost certainly doomed to failure. And that's for this reason, which is that it's it's difficult if you if you it's difficult to justify acting in response, introducing policy constraints on a specific variant of of shadow banking until it's sufficiently big to be a tangible threat to the stability of the system. Well by the time it's reached that point it also has, um, those concerned, have immense lobbying power, particularly in Washington, in Congress and elsewhere. And so that just as the policy response becomes um, obvious and even pressing, it becomes, it, it's become very hard actually to do it. And so I, I think this business of monitoring and then, and then responding isn't going to work. And actually, I don't want to make too much of this today, but we saw that with the these LDI vehicles in the UK. They were identified apparently as a as a potential problem in 2017 and 18. Well, that's four or five years ago. Um, the I think what what is needed is a general 
um, policy. And without going too far into that, I think that, first of all, I think policymakers, the public politicians, need to face up to the fact that these shadow banks always get liquidity assistance in the event of a crisis, even if people have said in advance that they won't. So the money market mutual funds um, were helped out, bailed out really, in 2008, and then again in the spring of 2020. You can read speeches from a couple of people at the Bank of England and also from a former senior official at the Federal Reserve. It makes it quite clear that part of the concern as COVID broke was that there was some kind of incipient run on money market funds. So they were then um, bailed out again. And I, I could go through a litany of examples going back over a much longer period. And my basic position is, if, if it's pretty obvious that you are going to bail something out, by which I mean lend to it against collateral, then say that up front and make it clear and make your terms clear. It's A lot of people respond to this, uh, this proposal of mine by saying, well, that would make the moral hazard problem even worse. I, d- I don't think that's right, actually. I think it gives you an opportunity to face up to it. I know I'm going to lend to the money market funds. What are my terms going to be? What am, um, how much collateral can I make them place with me in advance? What am I, for the technicians listening, how much excess collateral am I going to um, require? Will I place a, a limit on how much of the of the fund I will I will liquidate? All of which would act as constraints on, in that particular case, money market mutual funds. But I don't mean to pick on them um, specifically. And I think an important thing here is that central bankers really hate losing money from these operations. They really hate um, de- um, suffering from defaults, and that's because. There's nothing, there's no great virtue in that. Um, it's that they know that there will be public anger and political anger if that happens. So if they do provide liquidity facilities in advance, I think they will have much better incentives than now to put um, policies in place that constrain shadow banking. And the best way actually for that is the collateral policy. I, I thought for a long time, my former colleagues would remember my saying, Central banks do two things. They set interest rates and they set collateral policy. And that's, and that's it, um, really. And I, and what you about know, your second? We, Sorry, we, can, we can go on and on. And, and yeah. I don't mean you and I, but the world can go on and, with more and more episodes where shadow banking um, is the lucky beneficiary of, of liquidity assistance. And eventually we will have to face up to the fact that banking comes in many forms and some of it isn't an actually something that's called a bank. What about your, your second suggestion uh, with the need for better cross-border coordination for handling insolvency of financial institutions? Um, in your book, you describe some meetings you had at the Bank for International Settlements in Basel where you kind of likened central bankers' reticence to explain their policies on this topic to maybe government's reluctance to disclose what their their use of new policy for the use of nuclear weapons might be. I mean, is it real? Is it realistic that we're going to get people to disclose upfront how they're going to handle the insolvency of you know, complex cross-border financial claims uh, and the failure of large institutions? I think so. Actually, I think not bad progress has been made on on this. Um, 
If you take, for example, the London subsidiary of a massive securities dealer, it will, the plan, I hope executed, is that it will issue a deeply subordinated bond to the parent company in the United States. And if the equity of the London subsidiary is severely impaired or wiped out, the bond will be converted into equity by the London authorities. And so essentially the losses are sent to to the United States and the UK entity is is recapitalized. I mean, I will leave out what the New York authorities may then need to do themselves. But the key thing about this is that this 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 is hardwired in in advance, or almost hardwired in advance. The existence of the the trigger controlled by the London authorities is hardwired. And so, if if the New York authorities or the parent company board or whatever won't agree to this, well, then you know you have to balkanize, um, and you you either you either have to have a a, a system where in these integrated groups the losses go to the parent, um, including beyond equity in the subsidiary, or alternatively you have to balkanize. I think actually that is easier to solve in some respects than the provision of cross-border liquidity, because no one is going to finally agree to lend until they until they see the um, circumstances of the of the case. But the general theme here, the technicalities are less interesting than the general theme. The general theme is work, policy should work backwards from what's from, from disaster because it, it's only because of the problem of banking crises and shadow banking crises that we regulate banking in a special way at all. And uh, the policy strategy that we have lived with for well over half a century is where we'll do various things that will reduce the probability of failure. But that still leaves, well, even if you do that perfectly well, what happens when you're not going to crush the probability to zero? What are you going to do when failure occurs? So I think you, I think working backwards from um, disaster is, is much better in terms of articulating what the real policy challenges are and harnessing the incentives of all of those um, concerned. But of course, this is much harder in the kind of geopolitical environment that I've described. I mean, the, the doing what I've just sketched between the EU and, and the United States is easier than doing it between the People's Republic and the United States. Let's return to the, the geopolitical contest between the US and China for a second. Against that uh, background, how important an invention is central bank digital currency? Because the Chinese oh. are well, very advanced in this uh, area. I think I think it is important at, at a number of levels. I, I, the 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 central bank digital currency um, initiatives work in the in the West. I think was initially probably driven by wariness of of private operators, Facebook, say, issuing a digital um, currency. And I don't think that's just kind of central bankers wanting to be the kings of the castle. The, the, um, the checks and balances around um, central banks in, in constitutional democracies are considerably more developed and real than the checks and balances around concentrated private power. 
And whilst co concentrated private power in media platforms is, is somewhat controversial, as of course um, everybody knows, but imagine you had a, a private citizen who, is, who was the issuer um, of, of a very significant international reserve um, currency. I mean, I can't imagine uh, how that would reshape, frankly, international um, politics. So I think, I think the, the West's interest in CB, CBDC was initially that. But of course, the other impetus quickly became um, Beijing's initiatives. And here I think one strikes up against um, really some profound issues, and this won't be the first time I've said it. I think the West were slow to articulate some principles. I think, frankly, I think that there was a, a bit too much um, work on all the wonders of technology and a bit um, and being rather slow on articulating some um, profound principles. And let me illustrate them with this. You could imagine, um, assuming the Communist Party remains in, in charge of China for the foreseeable future, well, for them, a digital currency um, which somehow involves all of their citizens banking with the central bank, um, it's, they won't have privacy concerns. Um, the government won't have privacy concerns, but they would know everything about all of their citizens. Um, the government wouldn't have security concerns because they want to be the arbiter of all security um, issues, and they wouldn't have problems with the state being in a position to allocate um, credit through the central bank essentially being the state bank. Uh, whereas when you think of the West, you think, hold on, uh, we care desperately about privacy in banking. One of the underlying themes of banking law over two centuries or more has been, um, has been bankers' confidentiality. We really do care about the security issues, and most people in the West don't want to turn the, the central bank into the state credit bank, which is in, in charge of the allocation of credit in, in our societies. And I, 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 I think for um, Western democracies, those are kind of almost obvious truths. They're, they're not obviously for people from different political traditions, but I think I would say they are for us. And I think that the central bankers and finance ministries should have should have staked out um, very early on, four or five years ago, the principles that any kind of digital currency had to comply with and said, and actually, there's no question of anything out of these principles being violated, and therefore that's going to constrain the architecture and to some extent technology even of how um, digital banking and digital currencies are developed in the in the in the West, and I, and I still think they should should do that. And they've 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 now got closer to that in in some principles that came out a little while ago from Basel, but spread over pages rather than articulated into three or four clear points. And perhaps it's the kind of thing that the G seven finance ministers ought to do, or even the G seven um, heads of government. And this is the kind of thing where I've tried to present it. I hope not artificially. This is what I genuinely believe. I think you can't think about digital currencies or a complete reshaping of the monetary architecture without thinking about bigger issues. You know, 
the monetary architecture that we've got, which is central banking and then some large commercial banks and then some smaller commercial banks, each banking with the layer uh, above them, we've had the same architecture for 250 years. When, when, when Francis Baring wrote perhaps the first article on Lend of Last Resort, um, the architecture was the same, and he wrote that article with a quill pen. So the architecture so far has been in, of, of the monetary system has been invariant to the technology. Digital could affect that. Do we want it to? Well, that's not. That's above the pay grade of, of my former world. That's a, um, where does this touch our deep political um, values and institutional commitments? So does that mean we need a new international organization um, to, to deal with such questions or, or can that be handled adequately with the existing ones? I think it's quite hard for, for some of the big international organizations to tackle um, the, this issue and, and many others. I mean, imagine going to Basel to meeting or in Basel or elsewhere to, to meetings of the G20 um, or the Financial Stability Board, which is essentially a G20 body, and talking about cyber attacks. Well, you're just not going to do that in um, um, with everybody in the room. And it's not just, by the way, this isn't this is symmetric. It's not just that um, Washington, Berlin, and Paris and London aren't going to want to do that with Beijing and Moscow in the room. Beijing's not going to want to do that with with us in the room. One doesn't need to take sides in order to see that, that that things that have been easy to discuss in the past, well, they've been succeeded by things that are very hard to discuss. Or if one thinks about the IMF, um, the IMF got into very deep water, um, I guess a quarter of a century ago in the late 1990s, when they did a program for Indonesia and basically told Indonesia how completely to reorganize their economy. Um, and there, there were some reasons for that, but it was an into, there was an outcry because it was, it, it, they'd overstretched by telling a country how to organize itself. And I had thought the IMF had learned um, a bit from, from that, but I'm not convinced with, with this um, budgetary um, kerfuffle in, in the United Kingdom recently. I think it would have been perfectly reasonable for the IMF to say, you really do need to put a, a fiscal framework in place, you know. You can't disregard that, and we're glad that you're going to, and we're looking forward to seeing it. I think that would have been absolutely within their remit. But that's not what they said. They actually didn't make that point. They said, we don't like um, your package because it will exacerbate inequality. Well, what's it got to do with them? I may think it would exacerbate inequality. I may object on those grounds as well. doesn't matter whether I, I do or not. Others certainly do. But it's, we're a democracy in the United Kingdom, um, and that's a choice for, for us. So I, I worry that the IMF needs to retreat from um, engaging with social justice issues um, and actually just get back to its core business of preserving um, international financial stability. And that's going to be hard enough. But, you know, the best case isn't from finance and, and macroeconomics. It's from trade. The great subsidies case that went to the WTO appellate board um, around a decade ago. And the appellate board um, concluded that subsidies via Chinese state-owned enterprises were not barred 
um, by the WO Treaty, and therefore the United States couldn't respond with countervailing measures. And the grounds for that was, was that the appellate board concluded that Chinese state-owned enterprises aren't public bodies because they're not policy bodies. Well, there's a sense in which this is ludicrous in a, in a, in a party-controlled society. But the deeper point is, if, if I write this in the book, and it's what I, what I think after my, my judgment after thinking about it for a long time. I think the appellate board was hopelessly out of its depth in reaching a, a judgment, and so reaching that judgment. And so somehow one needs to reintroduce um, an element of diplomacy into WTO um, cases. And that's tremendously hard to do, because unlike the old GATT, um, everybody has a right of veto. The whole membership basically has to agree to any rule change. So combination, of the, what's happened in the WTO is that the broadening of it, a marvelous thing to do in many respects, has made the diplomatic policymaking channel completely sclerotic. It has made the judicial um, dispute um, resolution channel essentially um, the body that makes high policy. But it's not remotely equipped to do that in a world with superpower tension and, and contests. And we haven't even touched on infrastructure, the financial infrastructure, um, which I think is a kind of direct bridge from an economic financial policymaker's concerns and the concerns of a security policymaker. Paul, thank you very much for taking the time to chat to me about these fascinating topics. Uh, I really enjoyed reading your book, Global Discord, and uh, I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.